0: Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. If you have a, a Bible, let me invite you to open it to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there should be one there in the pew rack in front of you. You can flip it on on your phone. It'll be up on the screen. It's on the back of your bulletin. There's no way, place you can't go to find it. Luke, chapter 2. We're going to look tonight, verses 1 to 7. I, too, want to say good evening to you tonight as we have gathered here to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was born. I want to spend a few moments with you tonight just reflecting on what could be said is one of the greatest moments in all of human history, one of the greatest events in history. Now, that isn't an overstatement. It isn't an overstatement to suggest that what we're about to see here in these verses is... One of the greatest moments in history. Everything leading up to this point in history, everything that follows after this point in history, it all centers on what takes place here in these seven verses that we're about to read. There have been many great moments throughout history, filling up page after page of books, but the events recorded for us right here are the greatest in human history. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Galatians 4. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. The moment of all moments, the event of all events, the greatest moment in human history. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. The story here of Jesus' birth is really divided by Luke according to his account into two sections. The first section, you notice we just read here in verses 1 to 7, this section we're looking at tonight, it recounts for us the historical circumstances surrounding Christ's birth, the, the events of world history that are going on, the activity of Mary and Joseph, that's, that's really the first section. But then the second section, we notice down in verses 8 to 20 that we'll look at actually next Sunday on Christmas Eve together. The focus there seems to be more of heaven's reaction to these offense. Heaven's response to the birth of this child. In fact, we read down in chapter 2 verse 13 that suddenly there was with the angel announcing Christ's birth, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So this is the angel's response. This is heaven's reaction to Christ's birth. So it's almost as if Luke, he wants to recount for his readers Jesus' birth here from two different perspectives, two different vantage points. The, the, the first one being the human response, the human activity, the human perspective, the events of world history, you know, background information, historical setting of all of these events, and then also the divine perspective. Divine history, heaven's commentary on these events. the so two different perspectives, the historical and the heavenly. And my guess is that many of us might be more intrigued, more interested in the latter rather than the former. We might be more fascinated here with the supernatural events recorded, you know, like hosts of angelic beings announcing the Savior's birth, rather than, you know, just historical background information. Like decrees from Caesar, or a census, or the travel log of this young Jewish couple. Sort of like, if for family movie night, I tell my children, hey kids, we're going to watch a historical documentary. It's boring, dad. Versus a fantasy Adventure story, right? And in a similar way, historical background, you know, that kind of stuff, it may not interest you very much either. And so inadvertently what happens oftentimes is we tend to just sort of skim past verses 1 to 7, you know, rushing through them in order to get to the really juicy stuff of verses 8 to 20. And we don't try to understand why Luke is telling us this. And my friends, to do that would be... A massive mistake. Because to do so would be to miss what Luke wants to say to us here tonight in these verses with these details surrounding Jesus' birth. What does he want us to see? I think there's at least two things he wants to show us here tonight. Verses 1 to 7, and then I want to draw out a third thing that I think is hinted at here but becomes more clear as Luke's gospel goes along Three things I just want you to see tonight, number one, a providential birth, number two, a humble birth, and number three, a saving birth. First, a providential birth, a providential birth, don't miss this, we're told that the child's birth here is according to the sovereign plans and purposes of God. It's a providential birth. Providence. You know what I mean by that word? That's that's God's sovereignty on purpose. God is providentially orchestrating all of the events and details of history in this story in order to accomplish those plans and purposes. Verse 1, as Luke often does, he begins here by setting this report of Jesus' birth in the context of history. Look what he says there, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Notice just the historical setting here. We're told that Jesus' birth, it takes place during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Now, do you know Caesar Augustus? Caesar Augustus, this would be the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Could easily, Caesar Augustus here, be viewed as the most powerful man in the world at this time. He was held up as divine. He was worshipped as the son of God. In 43 BC, he inherits a shared authority over the Roman Empire. But by 27 BC... Just 16 years later, he had conquered and he had become the sole ruler of the Roman Empire, and he was so for 41 more years until he died in A.D. 14, although altogether reigning about 57 years or so. And the Roman Empire, it, it included much of the known world at the time. In fact, It included so many people of the world that it could often be referred to as the whole world. Look there, notice verse 1. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. All the known world. So this is the most powerful man alive reigning over the most powerful world empire. Verse 1 we're told that Caesar decrees a census of the Roman world. A registration. They are to be registered. Most likely for tax purposes. But it would also serve as a sign of Caesar's power. His reign. Both the breadth of his empire and his right to exact taxes under those who were Under his rule. And so he decrees a census to be taken. In which each person is required to journey back to the place of their family origin. Notice there in verse 3. All went to be registered each to his own town. So verse 4. That means. In the case of Joseph and Mary. That Joseph must make the long trek to Bethlehem. It's about a hundred mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem by foot or donkey with a very pregnant wife. Sounds like a fun trip. Verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. Now, verse 5, we aren't told why Mary goes with him, why she makes this trek. Maybe she was supposed to be registered with him because he was her husband. My my guess is that because of the angel visit to Joseph that's already happened in Matthew chapter 1, explaining the importance of this baby supernaturally conceived in Mary's womb, Joseph isn't letting her out of his sight. Also note that Luke tells us that she is still betrothed, again highlighting the virgin birth here. So they make this trek to Bethlehem. Now, at this point in the story, all you got is history. Caesar orders the census. A young couple's trip. I mean, it doesn't get any more mundane than this. But there's something else Luke wants us to see. Note that Caesar is really just background information here. He's just the supporting actor. Because Luke puts all the attention now on this baby who is to be born in Bethlehem. And he wants us to see the providence of God at work behind the scenes in very mundane details. And he's putting Caesar, the king of the known world, in his place in order to magnify the real king. It's a political providence, first notice, a political providence. I mean, from a very earthly perspective, it doesn't seem like a whole lot is going on here. Why, why does Luke tell us these details? Because he wants us to see that in and through these Details through the decree of Caesar Augustus, God is at work. God is working. He's using this powerful political figure to accomplish his sovereign ends. Because it's God who's moving the heart of Caesar Augustus to decree this census. This is all part of his plan. Proverbs chapter 21 tells us the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wishes. President Biden's heart turning it however he wishes. Putin's heart turning it however he wishes. God is the one in control. He alone is the true sovereign of the world, not Caesar. No, he is at God's disposal in order to bring about his sovereign plans. Let that encourage you tonight. No matter what is happening on the stage of world history, he is sovereign. It's a political providence. It's also a prophetic providence. Just just note the geography here. Did you notice that? Look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David. It's very descriptive travel language. Why? Why? Jesus is to be born in Bethlehem. At least that's what the prophet Micah had prophesied some 700 years before this. As we read in Micah chapter 5, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. So, it's listen, it's necessary then It's necessary that this baby be born in Bethlehem in order to fulfill ancient prophecy. We gotta get him to Bethlehem. But there's just one problem. One little problem. What's the problem? Mary and Joseph don't live in Bethlehem. They live in Nazareth of Galilee. And so then, how is it that They're going to get to Bethlehem and fulfill this prophecy. Here's how. God is going to use Caesar unknowingly to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And so it takes a census to get this couple and get this child to the place where the Messiah has to be born. Bethlehem. In fact, just notice all the David lingo. Did you hear it? All, all, all the mentions of David, verse four, they're headed to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, it's the birthplace of King David. Verse four, Joseph, and thus Jesus, as his legal descendant, is of the house and lineage of David. telling us what. He's calling to mind here all the promises made to David, that one of his sons would reign on the throne forever. So friends, do you see the providence of God at work here? And I think that's a real comfort of Christmas for us tonight. That God is in control of His world tonight. He's in control of this world. He's in control of your lives. What is it that's going on in your life right now that seems out of control? Because just as this story tells us, God is also in control of the circumstances of your life as well. If he's moving the most powerful ruler on the planet to do his bidding, if he's working behind the scenes in very ordinary circumstances to bring to pass his promises, then he is providentially at work in your life as well, no matter if you can see it or not. No matter if you're aware of it or not. No matter how difficult or how hard the circumstances may be. Our God can use all kinds of means, all kinds of circumstances to accomplish His ends. And that's a really comforting thought, isn't it? The great J.C. Ryle writes, Let us beware of giving way to over-anxiety about the course of events around us. As if we knew better than the King of Kings what time relief should come. The heart of a believer should take comfort in recalling God's providential governing of the world. So take heart tonight. God is always keeping his promises. There is nothing that stands in his way. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases and so you can trust him. Where do you need to trust him tonight? What? What is in in your life tonight? We find hope here in this providential birth. Second, a humble birth. A humble birth, verses six and seven. Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem and the attention now shifts to Jesus' birth. Verse six, look here. And while they were there, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. Verses 6 and 7, the scene here is just so human. It's just so ordinary. It's just so humble. So this Messiah, this son of David, as we read from Micah 5, the one whose coming forth is from of old, eternal God, to be ruler in Israel, to sit on the throne of David. Or as the angel had told Mary back in chapter 1, verse 32, he will be called son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. That son of David, that one, he would begin his life here on earth without a proper shelter. In fact, verse 7, there was no place for him. The word of God made flesh And there's no room. There's nowhere for him in this world. Jesus would say of himself. Foxes have holes. The birds of the heavens have nests. But the son of man. That's Daniel 7. The one whom all the nations of the earth will bow before him. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And so we see that God's Messiah. He wouldn't come as we might expect he was God's king but he certainly didn't arrive in a kingly fashion now we we probably need to dispel some more Christmas myths here often attached to this story first of all the harsh grumpy innkeeper is nowhere in this story okay (laughs) you know, like Mary and Joseph frantically searching and here's this, you know, ogre of an innkeeper. You can't stay here, you know. That's nowhere here in the story. There is no account of Mary and Joseph even frantically searching for a place, you know, like it was the last Airbnb and that's all they had. No. Also, the the inn described here in verse 7 is probably better to be understood as a guest room. Luke chapter 22, verse 11, is the same word when Jesus asked for the guest room to eat the Passover with his disciples. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach helpfully shows that most of the homes during this time, they had two stories where the family would often live in the upper story, where there was oftentimes a, a guest room that would stay. And then there was a lower room where the animals would stay, sometimes doubling as a guest room if they needed it. So because there were no doubt so many people in Bethlehem for this census in a small town, that's the place where Joseph and Mary would naturally stay. And there were probably many other people staying there as well. But here's what's true. Look at verse 7. Is that this baby, who is God in the flesh, the pre-existent, pre-incarnate Son of God, didn't even have a proper shelter. There was no room, not what we might expect, not what we might think for a king, let alone the Son of God. And that his very first crib would be a manger, better yet, a feeding trough for animals. I mean, the scene doesn't get any lower than this, could it? This is how in he was, God with us. Emmanuel laid in a manger. What a humble, simple, unadorned setting for the arrival of this messianic king. I mean, it's so paradoxical, isn't it? The Messiah, the God-man, born in a room reserved for animals. While the great... Mighty Emperor Caesar Augustus sleeps warmly in his kingly bed just a few miles away. No, he is born in this little obscure town of Bethlehem laid in a feeding trough with the smell of animal manure wrapped in humble rags. Don't don't over-romanticize the Christmas story. This is a dirty, lowly scene and yet this one born here is God. So it's humility before glory. It's a manger before a throne. The king of the world, born in human poverty. Again, J.C. Ryle, listen to what he writes. We see here the grace and condescension of Christ. Had He come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by His Father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have had reason enough to wonder. The God man coming into the world. But to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowliest, this is a love that passes knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His ways. My friends, we rejoice tonight in the wonder of this incarnation of Jesus Christ coming among us and that God went about it in such a very strange way, didn't He? The whole story here is so unlike the paradigms of human reason and human wisdom and human power. Humble, birth. In fact, it's in the circumstances surrounding his birth where Luke gives us here a glimmer, a glimmer of the nature of his ministry. In other words, of why he came into the world, that his humble birth testifies as to why God became a man. Maybe you're here tonight and you're wondering, you know, why Christmas, right? You're, you're like Charlie Brown. Isn't there anybody you can tell me what Christmas is all about? And what Luke is showing you here is that this mighty king came first and foremost to be a lowly servant. He came humbly to serve, and he came to serve us by dying for us. That's the third thing I want you to see from this text, a saving birth. A saving birth. The circumstances here surrounding his birth, they give you a window, a picture, a glimmer of why he was born. That his first advent, his first coming, he was meant to arrive not in the royal fanfare and splendor of one like Caesar Augustus. Not the kind of king he came to be. No, this king, the Son of God, born in the womb of Mary. Clothed in rags, laid in a manger, no place for him in this world, this king came to serve us by dying for us in order to save us from our sins. Philippians chapter two. Listen how Paul describes this: "Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, he came to establish his role not by force, not by might, not by political power and influence, but by emptying himself for his enemies. Enemies like you and me. And so his cradle here, this lowly manger, points us forward to his humiliating, self emptying cross. That the nature of his first coming would find It's ultimate expression in his suffering and dying as an innocent, righteous sacrifice in the place of sinners on a cross. He came to be a suffering servant king. This is the message of Christmas. If you strip that away then you have nothing more than a sentimental story and a self-help religion. Do better, be better, try harder, be goodness for goodness sake. No, the staggering message of Christianity is that God has done the miraculous. He has broken into history, coming into this world as a baby so that he might die and give his life as a ransom To secure salvation for us. This humble baby born to die. That's the repeated refrain throughout the New Testament. That's why we see he came. Let me just close with pointing you to a couple of these passages here. Just notice them with me. That connect his birth his first coming, his arrival to his death. First, just notice here Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says of himself, even as the Son of Man came, that's his birth, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This king didn't come to be served by human hands. That's what's true of most kings. Kings don't do the serving. They're the ones being served, not this king. And how did he serve? By giving his life. By dying in our place. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. It took the death of the sinless, innocent Son of God so that we might be freed and rescued from the bondage of sin and death. He came in order to serve. Or notice this one, Galatians 4.4. I made reference to it a moment ago. Connecting here Christmas to the cross. Look at this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the one whom God had sent to accomplish this redemption, He was perfectly qualified to do so. Because while He was the Son of God, uncreated, He was born of a woman. He was truly God and He was truly man. The only one, God-man, born under the law so that He might succeed where you and I had failed. And thus, perfectly fulfilling His law and bearing the penalty for sin, for breaking the law, dying for us. Or how about this one? First 1 Timothy 1.15 this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. That's Christmas. Why? To save sinners. Save us from what? The wrath of God. You need to be saved. Christmas tells you you need to be saved from the wrath of God. And that's why He came. Or 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, heavenly riches, yet for your sake he became poor, born in a manger, born a man, born to die. Why? So that by his poverty you might become rich. One more. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. That's us. Since the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That's that's the incarnation. That's Christmas. Why? That through death, by dying, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Why was he born? He was born to die. To serve us by dying for us. And so this humble birth pointing us to his saving birth. So let me ask you tonight, are you trusting in this Savior to rescue you from your sin? Turn to Christ. Be saved from your sins. The scripture tells us that all of us have sinned against the holy God. We deserve nothing but the just wrath of God because we have rebelled and sinned against him. But God in his great love and mercy has sent his son Jesus Christ into the world, fully man, fully God, to die in your place, to bear the penalty for your sin. And the Bible says that if you will simply repent, turn from your rebellion against God, And trust in this Savior who's come. That what he did on the cross was enough to save you from your sin. You'll be saved. You'll have the forgiveness of sin. You'll have eternal life. Behold the wonder of Christmas. As Martin Luther said, No other God have I but thee. Born on a manger. Died on a tree. God Emmanuel with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent Christ into the world, the hope of our salvation. As we reflect tonight on the humility of Christ, oh, may our hearts overflow with worship, with gratitude, with thanksgiving, with rejoicing, because our Savior has been born. Thank you for this gift of grace. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.